netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour, and welcome to this special FX Podcast. John and I are really happy to be able to provide you with this uh, special podcast we recorded here in Sydney in uh, 2012. I managed to sit down and talk to Dr. Alvy Ray Smith uh, for a podcast on FX Guide and also for a written article. And uh, well, I guess if if there was one person I was really glad to be able to interview again, it's Dr. Alvy Ray Smith. This is a guy who helped actually invent paint as we know it. He named the Alpha Channel as in the A of RGB. He uh, directed the Genesis sequence in Star Trek Wrath of Khan at Lucasfilm where he was until he and Ed Catmull decided to leave and set up Pixar, which uh, he also then helped sell to, or at least part of, to uh, to Steve Jobs. He got, uh, along with Ed Catmull, John Lasseter to join the company. Um, he then left Pixar and, and went on to uh, produce another company that he sold to Microsoft and worked there. He started his career at Xerox Park. This is a a man whose career basically spans certainly all of the relevant tech in my life, and I'm sure much of yours. Uh, Dr. Avi Ray Smith was recently in Sydney, and as part of a joint uh, setup that we had with uh, Sydney University and Sydney Business Insights, we got a chance to sit down uh, with Dr. Avi Ray Smith and talk to him. So I'm very uh, proud to give you this extended version of that interview that I did with him uh, here and just to go over some of the amazing insights he has as to our industry in the last, uh, well, decades, really. The, the man is, um, is a force of nature. He's a joy to talk to. And uh, honestly, in person, he is just as wonderful and interesting. Uh, so I, I apologize if I'm slightly gushing in this interview, uh, but uh, we all, I guess, can get starstruck from, from time to time. But he was very generous uh, in sitting down and talking to us. Here's that interview now. So thanks so much for uh, agreeing to talk to us. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here, Mike. You, you got to know the pleasure's all mine. I mean, I don't want to be sick of fan. I don't know. That was but, 19, starting off in 1984 was a pretty cool move. Well, it, it's just uh, <laughs> it was just too good an opportunity to miss. When we spoke before, you were thinking about coming out with a book, which I think was the title "Digital Light: A Biography of a Pixel." The very same. It's the only book I've ever worked on. Where, where is that at? I've just about completed it. I don't have a publisher yet, but I think one is very eager to do the book. We just haven't signed a contract yet. So I'm guessing we're in the last year. So conceptually, a pixel for you is more than just a dot, more than just a rectangle. It's a moment of things coming together, almost a unification of technology, isn't it? A pixel is a non-trivial concept, and that's one of the things I want to get across. You said rectangle. It's not a rectangle. Oh, no, it, I know. Yeah. It's a point. It's a sample of a continuum. And uh, that'll be one of the points I make. You can't see a pixel. That kind of surprises most people. What you see on a digital screen are little glowing, we call them display elements. They put out little blobs of light, colored light, in a rectangular, in a, in a regular array. And the little blobs of light overlap, creating a continuous surface of lightnesses, and that's what we see. That's what our visual system's designed to see. I call it spreading the pixels. You can only see spread pixels, and they're spread by the display elements. 
hard to get that across. <laughs> it's interesting though, isn't it? Because there's this world of uh, maths, uh, sampling theory, uh, but by the same token, you could have most of that discussion and we'd be talking about nuclear physics. You could have most of that discussion and it would be relevant to uh, modern data science or... Yes, uh, it applies everywhere, right. It's an incredible thing to think how much these seemingly disparate technologies are all actually connected. It's a simple idea with profound consequences, yes, in all kinds of fields, but of course it's what made digital light possible in my world. And your career has been nothing short of remarkable in realizing that, uh, that ability to basically simulate the world, which is not putting too fine a point on it, a pretty ambitious and audacious undertaking. It's interesting you put it that way. I never thought that that's what we were doing. Uh, although some, many of my colleagues just assumed that's what we were doing, was trying to simulate the world. Okay. I, I have, in my book, I've tried to elicit the notion called the central dogma of computer graphics. The central dogma says we shall make models of the, of the real world using Euclidean geometry. We shall project that model into two-dimensional space using Renaissance perspective. And it shall honor the light the light fields and gravity and so forth shall honor Newtonian physics. Now that's all real world stuff, but there's nothing about a computer that requires any of those three things. Well, let me take you back now to Xerox Park because I want to see if we can map a couple of big kind of views that you must have had on the world uh, and how that sat with the view of the future at that point in time. Now. I know Xerox Park because of I don't know, laser printers, the, the mouse, so many developments in graphical user interfaces. And I was astounded to know that when you were at Xerox Park, you had trouble getting them to look as at color. Yes, they fired me because I was doing color. And, and, and you kind of understand that doesn't gel with my worldview because this is a place rarefied in, in now almost mystical levels of uh, inventiveness and story. And yet you're saying that they didn't see color as being important? They didn't. It, it, it's, it was one of the big surprises in my life because it clearly was the hottest place going on the planet yeah. in computers at the time. The world as we now use it was being invented there. The Ethernet, everything. Everything. And... Um, I, I was doing color pixels. So they even had color. This was in the early days of color pixels. One of the things I discovered, by the way, was when the color pixel came along, 1967. I nailed the date. <laughs> uh, I thought we had the first ones at Xerox Park. So when they fired me, I went in, of course, and said, well, well why? And they said, we've decided not to do color. And I said, but, you know, the, the future's color, and you own it completely. And the guy, my boss, actually said, you may be right, but it's a corporate decision to go black and white. The, 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 can we just unpack that a little? Because here we've got an organization that is renowned for being innovative and being inventive. And yet you are seeing a future and it seems in retrospect beyond obvious. So obvious that almost like you'd be insulted to bring it up in a meeting. That's, that's what I thought. It was so obvious. So... For years, I was rather angry with, um, with Bob Taylor, who was the supposed visionary in charge of the group I was working with, um, for missing this. If, I kept saying, well, he's not much of a visionary. He's, he can't see color. And it was only when I was writing this book that I finally realized, yes, he did have a very clear vision. It's the desktop computing world that we now know, minus color pixels. And he pulled that off. And so I, I even thought about 
calling him up and apologizing to him that I had missed the fact that, that he was a great visionary, that, that I had a different vision that was beyond his, but he was, he got there and he implemented his, he made it happen. And I called him up to say all that. And his son answered the phone and said, Alvy, you're too late. He's, he's on his deathbed. In fact, oh, he died two days later. So I never got to, to tell him that I actually, my admiration of him has shot up once I put everything into perspective. There are so many um, aspects of everyday life where we sort of think that people would bump up against people that didn't have a vision and thus would have trouble uh, articulating a view of the future. Yet you're here at Xerox Park, the, the center of defining the future. How does, that, how does that work? And what can we learn from that? Because if you can't communicate color at Xerox Park, what do the rest of us stand any chance? The only thing I can figure, Mike, is that Bob Taylor kind of understood what it would take to get his vision implemented, black and white. And he saw Dick Shop and, and, and me as, as delaying that project because color wasn't, you know, it's too expensive still okay. for, a, for the Alto computer, which they wanted to be a personal computer. That's my only, I, I can't see it otherwise. I mean, it, another time he came up to me, he always smoked a pipe. He came up to me and he, he pulled me aside and he says, don't you find Dick's paint program difficult to use? And he pointed to William Newman, who was sitting over in the corner of the same lab working on a black and white alto. Isn't what William Newman doing more important? And inside, I'm just screaming, no, this is one of the easiest programs in the world I've ever used. I think I should set the context. At the, at the time that we're talking about, uh, in fact, a lot of the things we now take for granted in terms of, and I'm not even talking now about advanced computer graphics in films. I'm talking about the simple things like paint programs. You guys were inventing these things right down to, you know, the sort of the fundamentals that now are the, the visual language that we use to communicate with computers. But back in that day, uh, we were just so early. And there are so many people from that period and also from Utah. I think we should, should mention Utah because we've got... Um, Ed Catmull, who obviously uh, will, will figure greatly in your life in a second, but uh, Jim Clark, um, Alan uh, Kay, Alan who Kay. Was, yep. went to be incredibly significant at, at Apple. Jim Blinn. Jim Blinn. And of course, uh, John, who would go on to Adobe. Um, John like, Warnock, yes. What, a, what an amazing group of people. And uh, I guess the first thing is for people that don't know, why the heck was a lot of these, what are these people coming out of Utah? That doesn't seem like the, <laughs> was Utah the Silicon Valley of its day? Why Utah? Well, um, sort of, Happy coincidences. Um, three of the early leaders of the computer world were Ivan Sutherland, Larry Roberts, and Bob Taylor. And they were early leaders because they, somebody in Washington, D.C. handed each of those in turn a big stack of money and said, make, make this happen, make, make computers happen, we'll pay for it. And why that's unusual is they didn't go through a bargaining process, they didn't have competitive bidding, they, and they picked out the smartest guys they could have picked out. And these guys handed out major pieces of money around America, and one of them was to U University of Utah. And then Ivan Sutherland quit his job at ARPA handing out money and went and joined Dave Evans at Utah. Now Dave, they, of course, he didn't want to be in Utah. Um, uh, um, Sutherland didn't. He wanted to be at Harvard, Boston, Cambridge. But he that would have made more sense David, in the history books. David <laughs> David Evans was a very strict Mormon. Okay. And um, 
finally argued. Uh, and so for those that don't know, Evans and Sutherland was a company that made the world's greatest flight simulators and, and thus uh, had the finger on the greatest computer graphics because at the, in those days, if you wanted to see the best computer graphics, it was in flight simulators, wasn't it? Yes. In fact, the two engineers, you know, I mentioned the first color pixels earlier, 1967. The two engineers, I, I had to chase these guys down because nobody had kept track of who did the first color pixels. And I found them in living in Salt Lake City. They had worked at General Motors on the Apollo simulators for the Apollo moon project, which had enough money to pay for the first <laughs> color pixels. And they were thrilled. So I, I called these guys up and said, I'm going to come to Salt Lake. I'd like to talk to you. Go to, I'll take you to dinner. And they said, Albie, dinner's not nearly enough time. <laughs> come over to our house, one of their houses. And we spent seven delicious hours going through the earliest days of color pixels until we found the moment where they had done the first one. <laughs> now, one of the other and reasons... They, and then, then they joined Evans and Sutherland, and, and Ivan Sutherland himself told me that they saved the company. Well, and, one of the reasons I want to mention Utah is that um, we'll discuss a bunch of companies that you'll uh, go to and obviously help uh, and co-found like Pixar. But... That sort of university academia ethos permutated your entire career and those of the companies that you established. Um, the big international graphics conference, SIDGRAPH, is where people publish and Pixar from day one was always a publishing company. You haven't had an ethos in your life of holding back and, and sort of squirreling away and not communicating. There's a, a very kind of academic sense to oh, we the were companies very, you've done. We were always an academic outfit because we both Ed and I are PhDs. We come through the system. Uh, we weren't in industry. In fact, our first two um, patrons were the businessmen. We weren't. We were just, they paid for us to, to do research. So that continued the notion that we were just an academic outfit. And we, Ed and I understood that the pay was not money. The pay was fame. And well, academic recognition. That's fame. Okay. <laughs> it's the same thing. You, you get, you, people know you because of your work, and that is worth more than money, and we knew that. So there were certain things we would not let the people publish because they were key, but most of everything was let people know. I mean, why publish a paper? And, and after that period at Xerox Park, when you got fired for thinking, had the audacity to suggest color, uh, you ended up at a place that you once described uh, to me as uh, what you thought might be a diploma mill, um, which is NY Tech, which is a very unfair characteristic of it uh, in, in hindsight. Uh, it is. I mean, it's turned into quite a, a fine outfit, I think. But at the time, it sold auto parts in the bookstore. <laughs> it had a bookstore, but it actually had tires and batteries in the, uh, in the window. So how, how is it that you got attracted to Long Island, uh, on the other side of the continent, and what became what, the most influential kind of academic hub for the next 40 years? So these accidents happen, right? You just can't believe it. Uh, so I got fired at Xerox. And Xerox at the time had the only color frame buffer in the world. My friend Dick Schelp had built it, color frame buffer being... Like a graphics enough card. memory, it'd be a graphics card now. Yeah, but a, a, it was enough memory machine. to hold a picture made out of pixels. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, my uh, buddy David DeFrancisco is an artistic friend of mine, and I had cast our lots together at Xerox by submitting uh, to the National Endowment for the Arts a, a grant proposal to 
exploit this new art medium. Well, we, we, we had to have a frame buffer. We had to have a graphics card, as you might put it now, even though it was the size of a refrigerator. Yes. Where do you, we had to find the next one. So we started, we heard a rumor they were building one at Utah. So we drove over to Evans and Sutherland, and indeed they were building the next frame buffer there. But they wouldn't take on two hairy-looking guys like David and me to I, do I think art. The, I think this is we should not skip this point. We're talking about things that are so rare that there's like one or two of them in the world. Like today, there are graphics cards in every computer. In every, this is yeah. a state where you had to drive to another state to just find to the next one. Uh, yeah, the next, the literal next one. Graphics card. It literally was the next one. Yeah, okay. And we, uh, and they said, guys. We, we're Department of Defense funded. We can't have artists here. I mean, we didn't use the word art, but they figured us sure. out pretty fast, right? So one of them, Martin Newell, finally said, but you know, there was a rich man who came through here the other day, and he bought one of every machine in sight. And I said, including the frame buffer? He said, yes. So there was a guy who had purchased, he was going to have the next frame buffer after Utah. The, the guy you nicknamed Uncle Alex, right? Yes, his name was Alexander Schur, and by the one of the strangest coincidences in the world, he was the uncle of the fellow I'd been living with in Palo Alto, working at Xerox Park. So it's one of those un, unexplainable coincidences. So, so there, are, I'm, there are going to be f- uh, like four huge figures in the in the narrative as we move forward. He's the first, obviously, at NY Tech. You're going to have George Lucas in a moment at at Lucasfilm, and then, of course, you're going to set up Pixar, which was funded by Steve Jobs, right. and then Microsoft with Bill Gates. Right. So I'm wondering if we can look at those four periods, and, and starting with this first one, where NY Tech, was there any characteristic of his role as the leader of that group that you now look back on as just being a, a lesson you could sort of learn from? Um because you don't I, describe I don't him think as, so. I, he he was uh, you know he was an entrepreneur. He had New York Tech was a was a private university, and you know he just made money. But but, but he had a vision for the future because why would he go and get these incredibly rare as Henstone? Well, well of, his, his uh, he had a he wanted to be the next Walt Disney. Okay. The, the co-founder of New York Tech was a was a Russian fellow uh, named Disaversky who knew Walt Disney. There was a, a film, he'd written a book called Victory Through Air Power, which was a book that proposed that we should have an air force. The nation should have an air force. And um, the story is, is that did influence the formation of the United States Air Force. So he wrote a book proposing this called Victory Through Air Power, and Disney Corporation, the company, turned that book into a propaganda film. Their, their contribution to the war effort. And it was called Victory Through Air Power. Hardly anybody's seen it. Uh, Disney, I think, just has hidden it away because it's, it's full of all kinds of racial stereotypes. It's, it's, it still should be seen. But it's an it, artifact of history. It, it's an artifact of history, okay. So Alex Schur, the owner of New York Tech, indirectly knew Walt Disney. And he was already underway making an animated film on the campus when we showed up. The old-fashioned way, the cellular, you know, the Disney way, where you, you, you draw characters in black Indian ink on cellophane, on celluloid, and then you paint in between the curves with opaque colored paints. It's, 
That's Hide from the, the back. <laughs> yeah, it's it's opaquing. It's inking and opaquing. That's what he was doing. He had a hundred person team on the campus, and that and so a, a salesman, a traveling salesman from Evans and Sutherland named Pete Ferentinos, just cold called him one day on the East Coast. His territory was the eastern half of the United States. He found this guy and talked him into believing that computers would make the production of this film called Tubby the Tuba more cost-effective. And Alex Schur, being who he is, thought that meant that he could buy computers, fire all the people, and just have the computers make the animated movie. Hmm. And we say, when he said that to us, he says, Alex, you can't, you can't say that. It's not true. We don't have any idea how to replace the creativity. We can do the grunt work. And, and, and well. when you say we, this is like you and uh, Ed Catmull. Yeah, well, that's where I met Ed. Was uh, He had just left uh, uh, University of Utah with his PhD and had joined this guy on Long Island. And, of course, you and Ed will, will go on to form the computer group at uh, Lucas, in, and, but also, of course, Pixar as the yeah. founders. Um, what was that like just from, a, I guess, a management point of view? Like, how did that team run? Were you guys independent? Were yeah, you, we, were, did, we were a bunch of basically... It was, it was, you've already said it, it was collegiate. We were just independent entities where everybody was intelligent and everybody kind of knew what the problem was. We were going to make movies with computers and there were a host of problems to be solved and people would just, without, nobody had to order anything to be done, just somebody would volunteer to do that problem. So it's quite a self-organizing team by it today's lingo. You, you just, the way we'd hire people is that they'd show up with that look in their eyes and they had the knowledge and they would just, they were just smart enough. You if we'd actually had to manage, neither Ed or I are very good managers, so it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> well, you say that, but uh, history will prove you wrong. Okay, so you, you, you don't have to really articulate the future here because you're just allowed to go do it. Yeah. Now, we, that was one of our blessings. We had a very easy, clear vision. Make the first movie. Which is, it's a, is a kind of a moonshot definition of how to have a successful impactful project, isn't it? To, it took be able 20 to years. We had no idea it was going to take 20 years when yeah. we had it. <laughs> but so you, you have this super creative environment, self-motivating team. You've got the latest toys. You're not a poor academic. It's a, it's a beautiful place as well. At it's Long gorgeous. So now you go yeah. over to the other side of the country to join one of the most successful filmmakers ever at that time, uh, George Lucas, and set up the... Uh, perhaps slightly unimaginatively named uh, Lucasfilm Computer Division. <laughs> you know the story there. We, we, we wanted a really sexy name like Industrial Light and Magic. But you just couldn't agree on one. We couldn't agree. We were, again, we're collegiate. At least two people had to agree on the name and no two people. And even George Lucas threw in name suggestions. Couldn't get anybody to support his name. So, so you're setting up this computer division over in California now. And the thing that I find astounding here is, again, this is now the most progressively, I mean, it's making sci-fi for it. It's the, the thing is imagining the future in the films. In, it's the embodiment of this kind of, and yet it wasn't immediately easy to sell your vision of the future at Lucasfilm to one of the visionary filmmakers of his time. And that was one of our big misperceptions. Uh, we assumed that he wanted us to come and make content for his movies, he being George Lucas. But he, after I was there for a while, I was the head of the computer graphics, and I just assumed that he was going to come and ask us to be in his movies. And I just started hiring the best guys in the world, like Tom Porter in 1984. 
and Lauren Carpenter, these geniuses, my, yeah. group, my group of geniuses. I just I mean, it's that, the dream team I of computer just, graphics. Everybody wanted to be in the movies, and basically you just sort of do this, and they were there. Yeah. And, uh, and it's Northern California. It's a fantastic place to live. It's like living in Sydney. It's a really wonderful place. <laughs> and uh, I start w- waiting for George to come in, and he never came. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, he said, oh, my gosh, he doesn't have a clue what he's got. We had told him we could build hardware and software. That he, he see, he had a. This is another guy who had a clear vision. It just didn't happen to be ours. His vision was he was going to digitize the movie making uh, machines of Hollywood. Right. And he had a very clear idea about that. He wanted to make editing film digital and editing audio digital, and he wanted to put. He wanted to use computers to do all the logistics tracking. I mean, all this, the, you know, it is how Hollywood is done now. Yeah. In fact, uh, in that period, there was the Edit Droid, which yeah. is the uh, precursor to offline editing that we now think of as just Premiere or, or, or uh, yeah. any of the editing programs. But here's the thing I find really fascinating. And this is not without its irony. For a guy who made Star Wars... The first sequence that you directed in a major motion picture was in Star Trek. That's right. (laughs) Which which is just, you couldn't write that in a script. No, it's like, okay, so he's not going to show up. What do we do? And then Lucky, another another one of the many Lucky breaks along the way, was uh, Star Trek producers showed up to hire Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects division. But not directed by George Lucas now. No, no, no. It was a a special effects house for hire when they weren't busy doing... George's movies. So, yeah, I, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, says, yeah, we'll, we'll do special effects for Star Trek too. Well, the producers of Star Trek said, we want some of this newfangled computer graphics. The guy said, look, at ILM says, well, we don't do that. We think the new guys next door do that. Well, the new guys next door were me and my team, me and Ed and our team. I have visited that location, uh, and it was not a, how can I put this, salubrious, uh, luxurious, uh, expensive, you know, Silicon Valley. Um, this was pretty much uh, like a windowless kind of... It was hidden also. Uh, you, yeah. You had a, uh, Kerner Optical was the the words on the door. Yeah. Nobody, George didn't want anybody to know where, that this was Lucasfilm. Yeah. It been hounded. So, so you get a chance to make a sequence. You personally directing a sequence mm-hmm. in a major motion picture, ironically for Star Trek. Um, and and I got to just say, at this point in time, and I've said this to you once before, I'm going to say it again. It's worth saying. This was a such a quantum leap in the imagining of what computer graphics could do, because everybody else up until this point thought we were doing good stuff if we did logos and shiny metal and obvious things, maybe a robot if you were lucky. And you guys went, oh, no, we'll make a planet. And not only we'll make a planet, we'll grow mountains and trees and stuff. And it was like as if somebody opened the roof and sunlight came in and we went, oh, my God, this is what computer graphics could do? <laughs> it's pretty crude compared to your description there. Well, it was fractals <laughs> and particles and just it was marvelous. But it was organic. And that's that's a word overused now. But mm. in that day, it was a... It was just a point in history. I, I literally like that was the only thing out of that movie. I was like, yeah, oh, I can't remember my the rest God. of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure George uh, Chatner was great, but yeah, that was just oh. so. I've, we've talked before, so I probably told you this before. But when the when I landed that job, um, for two things, one, I I told the movie producer, I said, you know, we can't do movie resolution yet. Computers aren't fast enough yet. We can only do television resolution. 
And the guy said, that's perfect because this is going to be a video demo to Admiral Kirk. I said, perfect. And I walked out of the room saying, okay, we've got this one. <laughs> and I proposed it to, or, you know, put, put the team, call the team together and said, all right, we've got our first big break. We've got a, a major motion picture that's probably going to be a successful motion picture. Yeah. There had been computer graphics in the movies before, but it was always movies. Nobody, they were failures. So nobody had seen them. This is going to be a success and we're going to do a great job. We've got a 60 second shot. We're going to do a great job. Paramount's going to be happy. They were the yep. production house. And uh, the audience is it's going to make perfect narrative sense and it's going to heighten the story. It's going to make sense to the audience. But what this really is, is a 60 second commercial to George Lucas. So he'll know what the hell he's got. So you are imagining the future by literally making it and then saying, here, this is the future. Look, I've made one to show, to show you what it's going to look like. And I knew, I still don't quite know why I knew this, but I knew that George had a way of watching movies that nobody else does, so far as I can ascertain. He never, ever loses track of the camera. He's aware of the cinematography of how it's shot. Always, nonstop. If you think about it, if you're watching the cameraman, the director's failed. You're out of the story. You've, yeah. out of the, you're, you've, you've, you've not been sucked into the emotion. I think George could do both. He was always aware of the cameraman. And uh, I got to assume since that he was also tracking the story too. I just have sure. to. But, so I said, we're, I knew that. And I told my group that. I said, we're, we're going to put a camera shot in this Star Trek piece that will blow his socks off. It'll be, he'll know that no camera could do it. No real camera could do it. But it won't be gratuitous. It won't be, you know, it's computer graphics 101 where you just yeah. flip people around for the fun of it. It'll make narrative sense. Yeah, it did. It was a, an evolution of a planet as it grew. And the cameras you yeah. know, tracking all the flames coming over the edge and all that. And it's turning upside down as the spacecraft yeah, pulls away. It's a really complex move. And uh, sure enough, the day after the premiere, George Lucas, a pretty shy man, stepped one foot into my office and said, great camera move. He was gone. He's, he got it, and then we, he put us in his next movie. I was going to say, because you've literally visualized the future in a, another space thing, which not as even, I mean, like in the sense that all his, but, you know, he's got a, a, a franchise. We didn't call him back then a franchise, but he had a franchise that was space. You took an example of what it could look like in a space context, deliberately tailored to something that he would appreciate, and then presented it. Did that mean that from then on out, the future was an easy thing for you at Lucasfilm? No, no, it did not mean that. Uh, he did put us into uh, a very short piece in, in the next movie, Return of the Jedi. Uh, very brief piece. The most important thing he did was tell his buddy Steven Spielberg about us. And Spielberg had us in his next movie, and then it just started. Which was what? Uh, the young Sherlock Holmes. And the famous stained glass the Stained glass man jumps out of the stained glass and fights with a, a real world a priest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another huge stepping stone. It was, in it was a beautifully. I mean, every time we did one of these, we upped the quality of the rendering and did yeah. more spectacular. You know, we're on in in the in terms of the central dogma, we were honoring more and more of Newtonian physics. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he, you know, I, you know all this. He, he and his wife got divorced, and um, in California. There, there is no question. Half the fortune goes to each spouse. Just that's just boom. 
So overnight, he lost half his fortune. And I went to Ed, and I said, Ed, my partner, Ed Catmull, mm-hmm. I said, you know, George never really understood who we were, and he's just lost half his fortune. I don't think he can support us anymore, and uh, he's going to fire us. How many years had you been over in California now? Was it like... This was like four years. Okay, so that's a reasonable amount of time yeah, for, it was. for the it team. Was, we, we, we did another piece after uh, the Genesis demo, the Andre and Wally B. Uh, so they, Andre and Wally B, short that you directed, uh, rumor has it that you snuck someone into that? Yeah, okay, so I, I've told you how George Lucas didn't seem to understand who we were. He, he let us exist, uh, which is wonderful, but um, he never showed any real interest until we were about to premiere Andre and Wally B., our first outing with John Lasseter, at the SIGGRAPH in Minneapolis that year. George Lucas suddenly says, I'm going to come and see it. And we were thrilled. Finally, he was showing interest in something we were doing, and it was animation. And it was going to be before 5,000 screaming fans at SIGGRAPH, because that's how many people come to the film show. And when they see something that they know is a breakthrough, they... They, yeah. they don't hold back. It's a thrill of all times. It's the best reward there is, actually. And, uh, but it turned out that he was really there in town to see his new girlfriend, Linda Ronstadt, who had a gig that night. <laughs> so he just sort of said, well, I'm here for her. you know. So Ed and I and Linda and George went out to dinner, and then we got in this big black car, and they snuck us into the bot. So this is a, in a big sports arena in Minneapolis. Some big gates open. We go down into the bowels of this sports stadium. All the lights are out there. There's guys standing along the, the pathway with walkie-talkies and flashlights. And eventually get to an elevator, and it's dark, and they let us out. The, the theater, the, the giant cigarette film show, was dark because George didn't want anybody to know he was there. So, so he gets to see this astonishing reception to Andre and Wally B. He, he came over to our group afterwards and gave a little talk, but it wasn't, there was no excitement. And I only found out years later when, from Michael Rubin, who wrote a book called Droid Maker about the um, <clears throat> Lucasfilm days, that he hated it. He hated Andre and Wally B. Because, I think it's because he could only see what he could see, which was, frankly, it's a bit crude in retrospect. And we also had a scene that wasn't quite done yet. It still had wireframe in the foreground, which nobody who was there remembers, no. except George Lucas. He said he saw it. It was unfinished. It was crude in his. He could not see the future. Everybody at SIGGRAPH knew that 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 was just the beginning of something huge that was going to happen. Yeah. But apparently, he didn't see that. He just saw what he saw. Didn't like it. Just kept his. So more literal interpretation of what he's seeing rather than the opportunity it represented. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing here, but because yeah. I never actually asked him, but I, I heard that. By the way, for those that know, that's a short film and was the start of the huge history of shorts that Pixar obviously carried the torch on that uh, have been like a, the, I guess the almost the experimental sort of um, playground for up-and-coming directors uh, in computer graphics. There's a, the history of computer graphics can be told in those Pixar and uh, short films, really. 
Yeah. But that yeah. started with that one, Andre and Wally B, right? Which I think is also where John Lasseter enters the John picture. John Lasseter showed up just to save me, by the way. He saved me. I thought I was an animator. Well, and, you had done art pieces. Like, well, I've done a lot of art pieces, and I had made things move. I had a set of clapping hands that were just delicious. You'd also done uh, Sunstone, which was a major yes, art piece in its own right. It was, and I'm very, I'm extremely proud of it. That's still. in the Museum of Contemporary Art. It's in it? the Museum of Modern Art, Modern in New York yeah. City. Right, um, but not character animation. True. Nothing was character animation. We wanted to be character animators, and I thought I could do it. It was only when, uh, and okay, so we're coming back. Ed and I are flying back from the 1983 SIGGRAPH, the big annual conference. Yep. And on the plane, we're chatting, and we decided that at the next SIGGRAPH, the 1984, year hence, SIGGRAPH, we would announce to the world that we were character animators, distinguish ourselves from all those flying logo people and and uh, advertising, you know, station shop people. I mean, technology moved on a little, but the Apple Macintosh hadn't even been released at this stage. This oh, is no, like those all, are all toys. We never pay any attention to those. This is all, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is but this, this is, is still, these are so-called uh, uh, mini com mini computers. Yeah, this is all yeah. industrial stuff. Vax, we had yeah, PDP 11s and Vaxes and things like that. You know, half a million dollar machines. Uh, yeah, everything was very expensive and very slow. So is this another moment of you articulating a vision in a very concrete way that you had no idea how you're going to pull off? Is that... Probably. Sounds, probably. <laughs> I mean, you did pull it off eventually, right? Because I mean, uh -huh. uh, having a clear vision seems to be an important trait to get stuff well, done you know, when you're imagining things. I keep things. coming back to having a, having a clear vision is... Now I see how valuable that is. And right. It's hard, one of the hardest things to come up with. We... We, and we had this clear, we wanted to be the f group to make the first movie with a computer. It was really simply stated. And we didn't so, know what it meant. It could so have been, been two-dimensional, it could have been three-dimensional, it could have been a... But it, we didn't care. We just wanted every frame to be done on a computer. So this is like what? How many? Like a, at least a decade, or if not longer, of no? Is it twenty years? Twenty between years. Articulating yeah. what you want to do that, and and the actual film Toy Story, of course, which is yeah. The, so the this film. is seventy-five, mid seventies. Almost literally twenty years. You've got a twenty-year mission on Long Island with we, one vision. We watched these poor guys making using a cell animated movie. Yep. And went, geez, that is so difficult, and the logistics are almost out of control. We can do all of that. Now, Lasseter was, of course, at Disney as an animator, so he had the right sort of credentials. Oh, though. yes, he did. He but went, he was not the rock star that he became. He was no, a he, junior. he just. But he was good. He, uh, he introduced himself to edit me at a. So Ed and I would make secret trips to Disney every year. We always thought Disney would should be the company supporting us. Why, why this crazy man on Long Island, or why George Lucas? It should be Disney. There, that's the you know we had grown up with Walt himself teaching us animation on, on the, the weekly Sunday television night, yeah, the, show. What was yeah. that uh, yeah Disney's weekly show, whatever that was? Whatever it was, yeah. He showed us how to do it, and yeah. we both you know independently. We didn't know each other. We were raised on that as oh we sure. can do that. Um, so we would take trips out every year to visit Disney and kind of say, you know, are you guys interested? And they always had some reason why they weren't interested. I remember the first year was, can you boys do bubbles? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, what they didn't get was a computer can do anything. It wasn't yeah, bubbles the and bubble smoke <laughs> and, the, you know, it's like, but all their technical people got it, who we were. Yeah. And they told us very frankly, says, look, you, you should be here. If Walt were still alive, you would be here. Or if uh, Ob Iwerks were still alive, you would be here. But 
the guys in charge were, you know, as a football player was in charge. His, his, his qualifies Ron Miller had married Disney's daughter. Totally, and that's yeah. how he earned, earned the presidency of the company. So you're still at George, you're still, uh, sorry, at uh, Lucasfilm and you've gone down on one of these secret trips to Disney to just presumably just uh, check in and see whether they're interested in commissioning a whole lot of uh, amazing animated uh, feature film work that's... And it was as usual, they were interested, but nothing happens. But this time, this young kid who was working there, John Laster, invited Ed and me down into the archives, the Disney archives. Was that because John had a vision of computers being the future? Or... Yes, he... he, right. he so here's this bright kid who had already won the, I think it was called the Student Animation right. Academy Award, the Student Academy Award at uh, California Institute of the Arts, which was the, which was the college that Walt Disney himself had founded to train the animators for his own studio. John was the champion animator from a really high-powered class of animators, including Brad Bird and who's the guy that did Scissor Hands. Um, they were all in the same. They were all in the same class. Tim Burton. Yes, Tim Burton. Um, so he, oh yeah, okay. So he says, "Come, you, you guys interested in the archives? Well, we grew up, we were aficionados. You bet we're interested in, in the archives. <laughs> I remember going down to the archives with John. And uh, he said, what do you want to see? And I kind of, I said, anything? And he says, yeah, anything. I said, well, I want to see the dan Dancing Hippo from Fantasia. Preston Blair's Dancing Hippo. I mean, no, I hear this stuff, you, right? You don't mean the footage of it. You mean no, the I mean, original, the original drawings by Preston drawings. Blair, the actual great animator. John looks up chart and goes over and finds a manila envelope and does that thumb thing that animators do. The pages flip by and there's Hyacinth the Hippo dancing, the original Preston Blair drawing. Preston Blair would, would literally write the book that every animator kind of I, I learned from his book. Yeah, that's why I thought I was an animator. <laughs> he didn't teach you that the crucial thing that you have to have, which is they they can't animators can't tell you what it is. They just have something special. And so you and Ed ended up obviously hiring John in, but you're still at Lucasfilm at this point, mm -hmm. and so you're running hiring. George Lucas wouldn't let us do animation. He says only Disney can do animation. Okay, uh, and so we realized John couldn't be visible. So we hired him as a user interface designer. So for the second time in your career, you're in what is deemed by the rest of the world to be one of the most imaginative places on earth, and your vision of the future doesn't sit with the vision of the future of the visionary person that's kind of running it. See, I never quite saw it in perspective as clearly as you just stated, but yes, that's true. <laughs> so you see the writing on the wall, you've got a clear view of the future, and obviously Ed. Um, so... How do you get from being there, producing ter terrific work, but obviously not, you know, like your film yet, to having a Pixar, which does go on to deliver on your promise of 20 years of making the first full CG animated film? Well, let's see. Um, George got divorced and we had, that's when I went to Ed and we, and we just said, okay, let's start a company. Um, Make sure you understand. We are two computer nerds. We're not business guys at all, right? We're just two nerds. Rumor has it you actually crossed the street and bought a couple of we went how to write a business to a, plan a books. A bookstore in Marin County called uh, a clean, well-lighted place for books. I remember the name of the store because it's a good name. And you literally bought we bought two he bought two how to start each. company books, and I bought two others. So we bought four how to start company books. They're this really is your business school education. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, uh, I did call my buddy Jim Clark, who had been with us on Long Island, 
been fired from there, by the way. That's another story. So Jim would do <laughs> SGI, which was the yep. biggest computer graphics company ever at its time. Yep. And then, of course, go on to do Netscape. Netscape. So he was a friend. He's from, I'm from, I was born in Texas and he was a Texan. We grew up about 60 miles apart. So that's, that's like next door in Texas <laughs> and uh, probably here as well. Uh, so we were homeboys. And I said, well, here's a guy who's actually started a successful company. I'll call him up and ask him how to do it. And he said, he's very Texas. I said, well, Alvie, it's real easy. He says, all you have to do is you've got to learn the, techno the, the terminology. It'll take you about a year, and then, then you'll have it. It's just not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I should have noticed that he didn't volunteer to invest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you go and now produce a bunch of business plans in that kind of classical sense to, because I think this is an important story point. History sometimes, maybe at the Wikipedia level, implies that Steve Jobs bought this from George Lucas, oh, like they were best Steve mates. Steve had very little to do with this. Uh, he is an investor, though, but just oh, not. Oh, he's, he's not a, he's the, a, he saved us investment-wise. But, he, but oh, he was your company. Yes. So Ed and I had this idea, and we wrote up the business plan. And by the way, it wasn't to make movies because we knew we knew Moore's Law really well, and we knew that our computers we needed five more years of Moore's Law development. Just standard Silicon Valley development was going up by a, uh, a order of magnitude, a factor of ten every five years, and we were still a factor of ten shy of having cost-effective computers. What are we going to do for five years? While we wait for the, the, the computer. Are you really, cheap are you really articulating the vision very clearly? Aren't you? You're saying the future is coming. I just know exactly when it's going to hit, and it's not for like X number of years. Yeah, and so how do I think about Moore's Law? Is it's, it's been right on schedule all along. So uh, you knew it was coming. You just had to fill in. We had to fill in. So for five years, um, a lot of people don't know, we almost did a movie uh, at Lucasfilm. The Japanese Japanese, one? yeah. Shogakan, big printing company in Tokyo asked us to do a movie based on the monkey, monkey stories, which I love monkey stories. Uh, anytime I meet an, an Asian kid somewhere and I say, do you know the monkey? They all know monkey. They're raised on monkey stories. And, um, and you didn't just like bid that. You actually got to like pre-production and oh, creative. We were, we, you were, were like... we were, you know, we were holding Japan, holding the Japanese would come over and take us to these really fancy resorts on the shore of, you know, Carmel. These places. But you actually did the math and said, nah, -uh, this is going to, well, yeah, we were, we were fully into it. John was designing yeah. glass dragons and all kinds of stuff. I have still have the, the pencil sketches of the monkey character they'd done. And then I said, okay, I better sit down and figure out what to charge these guys. <laughs> and I, nobody had actually done that before. You know, run the numbers. <laughs> that's, that's an important step. <laughs> well, and we, you know, we sort of had flummoxed our way into there. And I said, you know, I don't really know what this costs. But I know all the components now. Let me figure it out. Well, I did, went through the steps and... Much to my dismay, I discovered it was going to take us three years to compute the movie, which is out of the question, and it was going to cost fifty million dollars, which is out of the question. At Back the time. then, it was like way more was than you spent. No, for a chancy thing like the first three D yeah. movie, no. Maybe if you'd come up with five, you'd have sort of chance. Yeah, but 50 five would have been like, in a year. Say so yeah. your production, five million. Because in that, today's dollars, that so would be I was, like. So four, I looked at it. Well, yeah. that's an order of magnitude off. Yeah, it's, it's real clear. And I had hence to, your. I had to back out. Timeline. You know, lose face. Be the guy that lose face. And but but uh, but you're moving. I'm, I'm, I want to get that that bit about how you. So you, I know that hasn't happened, but that film didn't happen. So you know what you want to do. You know the time scale. Um, did you know Steve Jobs already? Had he visited Lucas uh, or something? Let's see. So 
I can imagine he would have made a visit or something. We, yeah, Alan Kay, who's an old friend who hired me into Xerox Park, At, Alan Kay Utah, had gone yeah. to work for Steve Jobs as the chief scientist of Apple. And Steve showed interest in computer graphics, and so Alan says, well, you've got to go up to Lucasfilm and see the best guys in the world. And he did come up, Steve did, and Alan, and uh, Steve gave a presentation, but he almost immediately got fired from Apple. Right, so it's before the firing. Mm -hmm. he's, he's legendary, but obviously still to go through the trip that takes him off to do next and before he comes back to Apple. That's true. Right. So this is the first time at Apple. He was, uh, you know, very proud of his... And, and, and he was a, you know, internationally recognized kind of industry rock star. I mean, he was mm -hmm. a personality. Of... Oh, definitely. And he... So, and I had met him once before that, too, at a, at a design conference on the Stanford campus. We had sat at the same table and chatted. So I, I, this is my second encounter. With you. So, you know, we were there in the valley, and you get to know people pretty, pretty quickly. All right, but when Ed, so Ed and I wrote the business plan for a hardware company because we thought, well, we can build, we had built a, a computer called the Pixar Image Computer for George Lucas. With transputers. The first chips I learned to programs on. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think that's forgettable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do know, though, that they actually went back and found one of your original Pixar image computers, and it sits now at the front of the render farm at Pixar uh, in California as a uh, kind of iconic... Uh, we it was a we were terrible at this hardware business, but we did it. It kept us alive for five years. It got got us an investor. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> when you got Steve to invest, he invested ten million, being five million for getting the licensing rights to the tech, and five for kind of I guess working capital. Yeah, it was the right? working capital, right? So, so that's five like, went. We just Ed and I turned the first check for five right over to Lucasfilm. Right. To purchase our right, the rights to the technology for everything we had developed So it's there. an amicable parting with the guys at uh, yeah, Lucas. Yeah, it was. I mean, George was unhappy because he said, Steve's going to get all the credit. I did all the work. You know, that, <laughs> he said that to us as we were departing. So now you're with another visionary, uh, at least from the outsiders, again, painting the don't, picture don't, from the you're public. You're jumping there too fast, Am Steve. Am I? I'm sorry? We went through 46 funding opportunities before wow. we got to Steve. 46 people turned us down. And I think one of those almost had you at General Motors, right? General Motors was one of them. H. Ross Perot ran for president. Had Ross Perot not run his mouth off and upset GM's board, we would now be talking about the famous car company. Boy, I, you know, I, I have troubles with Steve Jobs. I can't imagine how much trouble I would have had with H. Ross Perot. <laughs> but, but, but these are legendary figures again, but you, you're living this from the inside on a one-to-one -one basis because obviously you are, uh, you are vice president, I think, and we, was that right? Uh, Ed was president. Ed was president. I was executive vice president. president. Right, exactly. And so, of course, at board level, uh, you, he's your major investor. Yeah, the three of us are the board. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't have anything positive to say about Steve except one, and it's a very important exception. He came through with the money when 46 other, 45 other outfits turned us down. And he would continue to come through with money because that initial ten million actually blossomed oh, we to about that nothing left. to fifty, right? <laughs> yeah, he kept so fifty you know, million. Like when these things fortune. happen, as you look back, say, I, I don't know why they should have happened that way, but they did. So we kept running out of money. We were not a good hardware company. <laughs> we kept running out of money, his money. You know, we just burned right through it. By the way, he's running next at this time. Okay, our hour and a half away. So it's, it's Ed and I, you know, we're running this company and we're running it into the ground. We're just not any good at 
being hardware. Well, the product was not the right product. It's the you, usual problem with the startup You're a companies. bit ahead of the curve. I, I think it was just a mistake, to be honest. Oh, we, you know, Moore's Law was right. going to solve can, this problem. So I can argue with you about that, but the yeah. parallelism yeah. that you were adopting in having the fast pipeline in the Pixar yeah, we got a, uh, By going RGBA alpha in parallel, we got a four times speed up. It's not an order of magnitude, but it's four times. It's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, but that yeah. parallel approach is echoed today in computer designs. I think you're being a little harsh on yourselves. I think you guys did a better job than you're willing to admit. But okay, let's... You know, basically, Moore's Law just left our sure. the Pixar okay. computer in the dust. So... so so you so we got rid run out of money and we'd go to Steve and well Steve wasn't about to admit failure, he had been kicked out of Apple remember, and this was his first investment after Apple, he could not sustain the embarrassment, of failure, so he would tear Ed and me apart but he'd write a check, and take away our equity, so you know after about three of those refinancings, he owns everything, and we. But we still have our company. It's funny, isn't it? Because he stuck with you through thick and thin. But by the same token, I think you once said that if somebody had offered him $60 million for his $50 million investment, he'd have also taken it. He would have it. gone for $50 million if he'd just made whole, been made whole. And we, there was, we, I know because we wrote, I wrote the business plans to offer these guys. <laughs> one the of them was H. Ross Perot, believe it or not. <laughs> from the books that you got. <laughs> but, but, okay, but you said he did one really good thing, which is coming up with the money. But also the other thing that he did, um, and I think it was after you left, it was after you left, is he took the company public at an astonishingly early stage by any right metric. Well, that, that just shows you what a brilliant businessman he was. He's, right. he's not, I don't think he's the visionary that people may, have made him into, but he, he was a marketing genius. He would take, he'd see a good idea and he would just make it his. He invented the, you know, he invented the Mac, if you would believe it, and he invented the iPad, if you'd believe it, and he invented the iPhone, if you believe it. He didn't invent any of those, but boy, did he sell the stuffings out of them because he's really, really good at that. And his brilliant idea on Pixar was, okay, so we, while we're building these machines unsuccessfully and running through all the money, 50 million or so, uh, Disney, you know, the Moore's Law finally got there and Disney knocks Disney knocks on our door and says, let's make that movie you guys always wanted to make. We'll pay for it. So they saved Steve. They paid for the movie and made him whole. And um, so we started working on the movie. And when the, it was done, took it to, to the critics in New York City, and they went nuts. And they said, well, yeah, this is going to be a huge success. And as soon as Steve heard that, boom, he pushed that aside so he'd be running the company when the, when the cameramen showed up. And he, he, he had the brilliant idea to take the company, which had no money at the time, public. It was a really bold move, and it made him a billionaire overnight. And to pick up on your point about him being able to identify technology, you obviously famously fell out with him. And I don't want to, you know, but obviously you did. Oh, yeah. But... No matter how much you fell out, and literally, I think you once said you had a, sort of a shouting match. Um, yeah. <laughs> he still actually invested in your next company. So even though he clearly had a problem that yeah. ended up with you leaving the company, he was still sore in you. No, I don't think it was that clean. It was, if I had gone to him and asked him to invest in my second company, he wouldn't have. But he did. Well, he did indirectly. He and, did, and quite frankly, you made him whole again, as you like to use he, that expression, because he, he did rather well out of it when it was sold to Microsoft. So, so when we sold it to Microsoft, uh, Pixar owned 10% of the company. Okay. Well, he was Pixar. 
yeah. by this time because sure. he, he bought all the rest of us out. So it went to him because he was Pixar. Not if if he had had to make the deal, I, don't, I think he would not have allowed it to happen. So you get to see firsthand that management style that that you found abrasive from Jobs. You're now at Microsoft though, because you've left and you've sold well, them. Before you're going further though, but Steve never managed us. That's no. a lot of people. He was your investor. He said, you know, he, he, he created Pixar and ran it, but he did not ever run it. He ran Next, and Ed and I ran Pixar. So, I mean, he never had a single say. We never allowed him in the building, for one thing, because he created Havoc. And John Laster never allowed him in the story room because he created Havoc. He was the money, and he got rewarded handsomely for that because he was brilliant to take the company public when he did. That was a brilliant move. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I guess my point was, though, that you saw, obviously, you had interacted with him a lot, is what I was trying to say. Yeah, board meetings all yeah. the time, yeah. And, of course, and I'm just skipping forward a little quickly, but you, you now end up at Microsoft because you've gone out, you've set up your own company that makes this, what I like to think of as what could have been the number one competitor to After Effects, effectively. as a It could have been, it could have been a Photoshop eater. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft didn't want to be competitive. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, so you go to Microsoft, which in the history books is the number one arch enemy of Apple. And, and therefore you've got Gates, in, as history paints it, the number one kind of chief antagonist to Jobs. I mean, there are very few people that had your experience of seeing these yeah, I know I'm both. up close. Yeah. yeah. So, so can I now go peel back and say, what's the future look like inside Microsoft? Was the Microsoft vision, was, did they have a good... Microsoft was a was a total surprise to me. Right. Um, my on my board of advisors at Altamiro's, my second company, was a man who was an advisor of Bill Gates, Gordon Bell, and he said, "Alvy, why don't you go up? I'll introduce you to the people at Microsoft, and they can give you marketing assistance." So I went up to introduce myself to you know to get some marketing assistance. The part I don't understand sure. about business is marketing, and. Uh, I meet this guy, Nathan Miravold, who's like second only to God, God being Bill Gates. And uh, he and I really hit it off. Just it was a Vulcan mind mill. We were <laughs> trying to out-talk each other on any quantum mechanics, high-class high photography. And somewhere I, <laughs> I said, Nathan, this is great, but I'm here, I, I'm here to do some business. You know, I'm looking for marketing assistance. And Nathan says, why don't I just buy that company? And I sort of felt like, like uh, 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 not me, it's the company. He's like, he says, I got it, it's the company, not you. I said, well, I didn't come here for that, but I can run it by the board and see what they think. And they said, yeah, let's do it. And so all I had heard about, so to me, Microsoft was famous for not having any marketing sense whatsoever. They were a bunch of, it was about the nerdiest company on the planet they didn't care what you thought about them. They were good. They knew they were good. If you didn't see it, tough. So to paint the picture, when I was looking from the outside in, I would have painted Microsoft as uncool, uh, kind of evil empire, uh, not particularly innovative, not particularly um, imaginative, and certainly not... You know who painted that story? Steve Jobs. Since, since Microsoft wouldn't paint their own story, Steve just jumped into the, jumped into the lurch and said, this okay, wasn't they're, your they're, experience. Not, they're not... No, I got inside... It was some of the sharpest programmers I ever seen seen in my life. They tested every line of code multiple times. They 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 rethought they thought out the product from scratch f before ever laying a line of code. It was very innovative. It was so complex. I remember watching an interview one time. Bill Gates was about to announce a new version of Windows, I think, and 
a, a woman was a, a reporter was interviewing and says, you know, tell us something innovative in Windows. Well, Bill Gates is just straight nerdy guy. He just he told her exactly something that was very innovative. Of course, it went right over everybody's head, including this this reporter who then reported that he was this arrogant bastard. And I said, there, I said, no, he told you exactly something that was innovative and you didn't get it. And, and they just didn't employ you as a guy. They made you a graphics fellow, which was a, a title that until you, you yourself chose to violate, it was to be reserved only for you. Right. It was a quite a hallowed kind of, that you didn't just land there. You kind of, they welcomed you with open arms. It was a good deal. I'll, I'll put it that way. They, they, they made me financially successful. Let's put it that way. So, and, yeah. So we've got now Xerox Park couldn't see the future and you move and you obviously had the similar kind of thing with Lucas to a certain extent. Was Microsoft open? Because again, from looking from the outside, some of the great stuff you brought there didn't go anywhere. So, no, so I, I thought Microsoft didn't use what I brought them. Yeah. And so basically I just stayed. I had golden handcuffs of four and a half years. My my options vested in four sure. and a half years, so I stayed till the four and a half years was up, and then I left because it was clear to me they weren't utilizing what I was bringing. Why do you think they couldn't see the future? Because the stuff that you brought to them was, in retrospect, exactly what is used worldwide now. And I still use the product that I did for them every day because there's nothing out there that yeah. yeah. I use Photoshop because that's the one that's out there. Sure, but. A lot of things you can't do in Photoshop are really hard to do, which are easy and a snap to use. And my product was just called PhotoDraw. Yeah. And I use that every day. But but why not? Why not? Like, how could they not see that? Like, it, were there bright I, people? Microsoft is a very complex company. Uh, it wasn't one giant company that, ex- that executed uh, business plans. There were these little fiefdoms, all, you know, hundreds of fiefdoms each doing their own products. Competing so it's more with of a structural another. issue than a vision there problem? Wasn't a, I, I, when I came in, I said, I've got an idea of to how to bind the, all the image products of Microsoft into one uh, giant scheme. Yep. They could care less. Hmm. They just were interested in getting the next product out, which they were awesome at. <laughs> I, 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 had, uh, I watched them take my product and generate five commercial products from it in five years. It, it was awesome. So that was, that was good productization. I, oh, they are awesome. And uh, I realized everything I'd heard about them was just wrong. They, they had this thing down. And they also didn't want to be seen anymore as the big bad guy. I, I, want, I thought I had a, a Photoshop eater. And I they did, didn't, but they, didn't, they did not want to be seen as a, an Adobe eater. Because right. they were in, you know, everybody thought they were the big bad um, evil so, empire. So let me ask you some some broad questions, if I could. I was interested to get your opinion. Um, like if you're looking back now at these huge moments of technology and shifts in the industry, what would you characterize as like, I guess, your, not financial, but sort of greatest success? Like what do you, like what was it that you sort of look back on as being the, the pivotal successes? Well, Pixar, I, Pixar to me is just, but I'm the, so proud of Pixar. The I culture can't... of it or the output yeah, of the it? Yeah, the culture of right. it. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. It's the culture of it, and the culture of it is everybody's the same. That, that, that sounds like I've said nothing, but the artistically creative people are just as important as the technically creative people. I, didn't find, I haven't found that anywhere else. Microsoft, it certainly wasn't true. The techni- technically creative people 
were heroes at Microsoft. But if you did art or marketing, which is considered one of those lower forms, they could care less about you. Right. They look down their noses at you. And I've been in graphic studios where it's just the reverse. The artists were the kings and the gods, and there were these technoids, they called them, who did the technical stuff. That's just, that is so wrong. So at, the, the, the culture that I'm really proud of at Pixar was this, these were mutual. Yes, there are different types of creativity, no question about it, but they have to work together in intimate, mutually admiring relationships. And so everybody had equal everything, promotions, uh, salaries, uh, dignity, uh, health plan. I mean, everything was exactly equal. Yeah. And the whole idea was you were part of a, so let me ask you a related thing. So when you started out, you were in a world where we didn't have very good track records at making software. And today, a lot of companies uh, adopt Agile and Scrum and these kind of modern uh, programming techniques that are, uh, you know, non-hierarchical, self-organizing uh, teams. Do you view that transition of how people approach software as something that somehow you were echoing in it or like sort of pre preempting or do you know I, I that's it was too, different that's too big an idea for what we just we just did you know I don't we weren't because a lot of the things you like talk that, about in yeah. terms of how you respected the individuals and how you didn't have this hierarchical stuff are modern management approaches good <laughs> it's really good it's it's a it's a wonderful comfortable environment if you feel like you're you're being celebrated for what you're good at yeah, and the person that's closest to the job knows the most about it rather than being sort of told what to do. Yeah, I can't, I, that might just be a reflection of Ed and me. I, I, I'm no good when people are ordering me around. Like, that's probably why Steve and I didn't get along. You know, <laughs> you had to be his slave and I wouldn't, I refused to be his slave. So, if you were teaching business students today, what would you want, what would you want them taught or what would you teach them? You know, I, I get asked, given opportunities to generalize like that, and I really don't know how to, to, to answer. I, one of the forums is, you know, I want to get ahead in the, in the computer graphics world. What I do, I says, you know, master, ma figure out what it is you really are good at and don't make a mistake. Like, everybody wants to be an animator. Well, there are very few animators in the world. They're like actors. They're just, they're, so find what you're really good at, becomes ex extremely good at it, and then go where the action is. So I say generalities like that, but I don't know how to. It generalize. seems to me one of the things that you guys did very well, and I and you know that I uh, I mean no disrespect in saying this, but you guys failed a heck of a lot. It's we just did. you never were failures. Does that make sense? Like you 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 hit these roadblocks a lot. What was it forty six on these rejections for setting up Pixar, and yet you never acted like you were failures, and you kept the faith as it were, which is. <laughs> Without being arrogant, it was like a, a, I don't know what that was. It was Well, I think it's luck. I, I, uh, if, if Steve Jobs hadn't come along, we would have, we thought it was over when, when, when General Motors turned us down because we had almost closed that deal. All, we were in a 40-something floor of a building in lower Manhattan and 20 people around the table and everybody saying yes and shaking hands. That's a done deal in the business world. Only thing we were missing was over, you know, overnight the lawyers had to turn the agreements, the verbal agreements, into paper, and we had to sign the papers. And that, and overnight though, was when the Ross Perot news broke that he had insulted the board of directors of General Motors, and everybody knew that anything that had to do with General Motors and Perot was dead, and our deal was right in there. Ed and I were just 
now what do we do? We're driving back in a limo to the airport, just miserable because we'd run out of possibilities. And that's when we came up with the Hail Mary of calling Steve. All right. So you say that it's hard to do the generality. So in the specifics, how would you advise somebody that finds themselves in this position that you seem to have found yourself in, where you've got a clear vision of the future, but quite frankly, the people around you either don't share that vision or just can't see this quite, to you, obvious next step. Is there any advice you have about how to, not to sell that idea, but just to to work in an organization to get that future realized? All I can think of is trivial comments like keep trying. <laughs> uh, I, you know, if... I keep thinking it's just luck. If 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 Steve hadn't said yes and we came up with our Hail Mary plan, that would have been it. We would have been dead. There was no, I, we didn't have a backup. I, so. I think the other thing that I noticed when I look at this is um, it's actually been really important to your career. All of these people that have travelled up with you in their own respective spaces. Like it seems to me that. Uh, John at Adobe or like, you know, Alan at uh, Apple or whatever they are, the people we've mentioned in this story, of course, they all independently had their own careers. Yes. But you, you kept a generous kind of nature with all of them. That meant that at various times they re-entered your life and helped to go to that next step. It seems to me that that idea of having, not, it's not like it's your crew or your particular like close, tight, tight friends, but just doing this sort of professional dare I say, almost academic respect for like colleagues as everybody rises well, through I, their careers. I like the academic respect part. I keep coming back to academia was, was our model. You know, you, you got respect for your ideas. And uh, the money just came because it, if you've done a good job, money comes. That uh, wasn't our, I can't imagine going to a business school and saying, don't be interested in the money, but I think that's what I was actually saying. <laughs> what do you think the future is of uh, entertainment and stuff moving forward from where we are now? Where well, do you? Okay, so let me say two two things. One is I'm always kind of disappointed how my technology is being used in the movies. I'm just sort of sick of exploding robots, and you know that it's like okay, that's a little boy stage. We've got to get that out of our system, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's permanent. But that's just not my world. So I should shut up. I like to see my technology used to tell stories that can't be told otherwise. The first time I saw it happen was in Titanic, uh, where all the oceans are, they sunk the Titanic. Yep. Well, you can't sink the Titanic on a stage. I, mean, you know, I saw an early movie where they did it. It was so obviously a toy being sunk in a tank that, okay, they did it. But that wasn't the story. All those teenage girls that went to that movie weren't there for the computer graphics. They were there for, what's his name? So <laughs> the romance, they were there for the story, right? All right, so that's one thing. All right, what's out on the edge? I, I'm tracking very carefully VR, AR, and MR. Um, I'm, I'm advising a little startup company in the Valley. It's a Chinese-American woman CEO, which yep. I like helping that out, uh, who's got a, uh, a studio called Baobab Studios, which has been winning prizes right and left for virtual reality. She says, Alvy, I want to be the Pixar of VR. That's her charming, <laughs> the way she... Seduce me into being the, her advisor. The, the, the elevator pitch. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, that got me interested in the, sta the, st the state of uh, augmented reality. And then the, the really hard problem is where you, is, is mixed reality, I call it, where you take a, an internal model, following the central dogma, of course, it's Euclidean and all that, 
and and render a computer graphics world into your goggles and you bring in the real world at the same time and you deduce what the structure of the real world you're looking at must be so you can combine the synthetic world of the computer graphics with the assumed structure of the real world so that you know you the, the synthetic things can actually sit on the table and go behind objects in the room if it's transparent glass it, it'll show through this is a really hard problem mm. and people are working like crazy on it places like magic leap and microsoft hololens and and um, other places are do, are working at it and that was the hottest thing at siggraph this year and i said god I can see that could, that could keep a you know a decade of people excited and trying to solve those problems. And central to a lot of that has been machine learning, or we, we sometimes call it AI. But I want to avoid the idea that we're talking about um, you know uh, singularities. So in machine learning, do you you you've seen that kind of AI machine learning push fail in the past, and you've been a bit of a critic of that. Do you want to discuss that? Well, I don't know whether you know it or not, but I started out in AI in 1965. I went, there was this new field called computer science. Yep. And at Stanford, they had a department called computer science. It's one of the first ones. And I went there for graduate school to learn this sexy idea, artificial intelligence. Went, oh, that's so cool. Maybe we can figure out how this human brain works using computer models that appealed to my romance sure. at the time. Well, after a couple of years, I said, nah, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. And I'm going to change to something I can actually make happen. Do you happen, still like feel that? A first movie. No, I don't. It's, uh, this is sort of like the fifth revival of yeah. AI in my career. And this time, things seem pretty different. What do you think that is? Do you think it's, it's Moore's Law? Is it tech catching up? By the way, do you still believe in Moore's Law? Or do you think it's running Oh, its absolutely. Post? You still think it's, it's going to keep going? It's still going. And the thing about Moore's Law is it's going to hit a trillion in 2025. It's just a few years from now. Uh, after that... Not clear whether it's got extended life, but the very nature of Moore's Law is you can't know how to extend it until you get there. That is, that's People what have been I mean. predicting the end of Moore's Law for many years. Oh, I've seen, I've seen this death predicted four times in my lifetime. Right. Every time we get there, the engineers just blow past it. Because once they're there, they can suddenly see how to take it the next step. Okay, so you've they got, can't see it until they get there. So this change that you perceive in the current AI machine learning that's, that is sort of delivering significant results. That's a Moore's Law phenomenon, or is it that we've got better approaches? Or? It, it's a lot, it's, it's Moore's Law to a large extent, um, but also we're, we're figuring something out. I mean, um, it could just be because we've got a, an N of 10,000 that we can study. You know, they're just, you can, you can throw up 10,000 pictures of horses and, and let me run through uh, a paper that, I, I still don't understand it. It's got my mind stretched, though. Uh, Allison, Gopnik, my wife and I were visiting Cambridge, England. So just to establish, your wife is actually a professor, right, at Berkeley? Yes. Yeah. Doing AI these days. <laughs> uh, and an old colleague of mine, John Bronskill, who made his fortune writing filters for Photoshop. In other words, he's a pixel packer like me came up to me and he says, hey, Alvy, we don't have to program anymore. I said, what are you talking about? He said, read this. And he handed me a paper, which happened to be from Berkeley, which is where I live, where my wife teaches. 
And it, it's what I call the horse, horse zebra paper. They had taken a neural net. They had shown it 10,000 random pictures of horses. Arbitrary counts, colors, arrangements, unlabeled, just pictures. Yep. They had also given it 10,000 pictures of zebras, also unlabeled, just arbitrary arrangements, and had a certain a training system. The result was you could hand this trained AI and a neural net a picture, an arbitrary picture of horses, and it would hand you back that same picture where every horse had been turned into a zebra or vice versa. Yep. And I looked at that and I says, you know, that's not even a well-defined problem. How, how can you, how can he, he says, we have no idea. It just works. <laughs> and he says, it's too complex to reverse engineer. And all of a sudden it hit me. I says, you know, I've always assumed I would understand how intelligence works since we explained it. But I'm starting to wonder if that's true. It could be that, I don't know, maybe we're into the, uh, the, uh, the really uh, esoteric parts of computation theory that Turing told us were there and that we've avoided all these years. Now, you know, when you program, uh, the operating system keeps the program from writing on the program. So the, there's the data over here and the program can work on the data, but it can't com compute on itself. Even though, even though computers from day zero have been able to compute on themselves, we don't allow it because all kinds of havoc happens if you let the let a computer compute on itself. But these neural nets are computing on themselves, I think, and I have a feeling maybe we're getting into a realm where it's just so complex that you cannot rationally figure it out. It, it's, but I'm talking through my head here. Also, no, so. I just think it's so great to see someone with your experience and your perspective on life so enthusiastic about what the future holds. Well, I, I think back, what is it I really want to know more than anything else in the world? I want to know how this works. You, I don't know, I your brain. know what consciousness is. Come on. Uh, it's the most we, important yeah. thing in my daily life. What in the hell is it? Consciousness is the thing that everyone assumes we know what it is, and no one no, actually knows what it is. Nobody has a clue what it is. Yeah, it's no. like there are several things I have no clue uh, about, by the way. One of them is I don't know how animators do what they do. <laughs> they, they, they can make you believe a stack of polygons is conscious and feels pain and is conniving or, you know, like trying to outwit the wily e. coyote. Uh, you, and it's so good that you are convinced. I mean, that's their art form. Actors do the same thing. They convince you their body is somebody completely else, and you believe it, or they're not a good actor. Um, I don't know how engineers have figured out how to make Moore's Law go to the next order of magnitude. I can't figure it out, but they do that, and I can't figure out great programmers. You know, a, a computer is just a bunch of dumb steps one after the other. A computer program is just one dumb thing after the other, and yet... Each step is meaningless, but the result of a, of a programmer's creativity is that long list of meaningless steps does something completely meaningful, like create a Pixar movie. How does that work? Well, I just can't thank you enough for taking time to sit down with us and talk. It's a great pleasure, as always. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, you, you asked very good questions. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. I want to thank Dr. Alvy Ray-Smith so much for his uh, generous time, and of course, also the team at SBI for this joint venture, and you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other podcasts, including The VFX Show, which regularly touches on and looks at visual effects in various films and TV shows, both uh, current and occasionally old. 
Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Mike Seymour. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.